Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Karen Bliznick. Karen is the principal trumpet of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra and the producer and engineer of Tower Grove Records. In this episode, Karen and I talk about her journey to the symphony orchestra, auditions, gender, mental health, and new project exploring her creativity as a musician. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. Please make sure you like and share with your friends. Please make sure you're also subscribed to our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. If you are interested in being a guest on the show, please make sure you are sending your bio to musicherstorypod at gmail.com. And I will see you next Monday. Karen Bliznick. I'm the principal trumpet player of the St. Louis Symphony, um, and I have also recently started a record label, which is actually called Tower Grove Records. So that is my current position. Awesome. I'm so happy you're here. Just to get us started, to get a baseline of, you know, who you are and where you're coming from, what got you started in music in the first place? Yeah, I think I grew up in a, a little bit of a hot spot for music. I do feel lucky for that. Um, my dad, uh, well, I guess I can probably start with a little bit of my family. Uh, my dad was a trumpet player in the Navy um, and also played in the Boston Crusaders. Uh, he was in the Navy band from like 69, I think, to about 73. Um, and then the Crusaders when he was a little bit younger. Um, but he had this King Flair silver um, B-flat trumpet in his closet that had like a lock on it and whatnot. <laughs> and I remember like sneaking little peeks into his closet from time to time kind of wishing and dreaming that I could play that instrument, but you knew that it was a little bit off limits until potentially I, you know, went through the schooling system. Um, but I, went, I uh, was lucky to go to a high school that had an entire fine arts building dedicated to music and drama, wow. um, as, long, as well as visual arts, so photography and other types of art. Uh, so I do feel like that was a really nice start for me. Um, so I had, education for in, specifically towards band. Um, we did not have an orchestral program. So um, I played in a band of some sort from probably about, you know, uh, seventh, sixth grade, maybe um, mm -hmm. until, uh, you know, through all my schooling at this point. Um, so that was a great start for me, especially in high school. So I'm from Brockton, Massachusetts, um, which is the south side of Boston. Um, and Vincent Macrina was the music director there while I was there, and he has an incredible history of not only just trumpet players, but bringing up some pretty incredible musicians. My next door neighbor happens to be uh, Brian Scanlon, who is a lead trumpet player, um, who has been with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, mm. along with um, Brian Setzer's orchestra, and he's so a lead jazz player. So kind of being surrounded by a bunch of people that um that are playing music including my sister who is a clarinet player uh she is now living in paris and has a conservatory called the american conservatory of paris um where she teaches oh. english yeah so i think it's it's convenient for them because it's also a bilingual program um so uh, I guess you could cool. even say trilingual if you consider english french and music <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's so amazing. Watch your Brass Chats interview. And so I, I know a little bit about you and obviously from reading your bio and everything. But for those people who are listening that don't quite know too much about you, what motivated you to choose the trumpet initially? Yeah, um, I think we all kind of it's funny because I was listening to your interview with Carol. And I think we all have a very similar story where you had to choose like three instruments. Yeah. And you were put in the situation where perhaps people were performing them for you and you had to decide by maybe even just sound or whether or not your your body was large enough to even play the instrument, you know, something like that. Mm. Um, I I did I do remember distinctly thinking that I liked uh, percussion instruments, uh, but my my family wasn't so amenable to that. <laughs> uh, I don't know that they you know they they saw it much more as you know striking instruments instead of making music. So uh, I ended up going the route of my second choice, which was the trumpet. Um, and uh, I think I will admit going through high school with a program that had so many trumpet players in it, there was a healthy amount of competition. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that helped propel me a bit forward. I, I had one buddy in particular, her name is Mike, his name was Mikey Correa. Um, and we would kind of always vie for the top spots. You know, we'd vie yeah. for polo spots. We'd vie for the principal spot in the, um, you know, marching band or the, Oh man, we, there were so many opportunities for us to play different styles of music, including like pit music, even like playing through like Bye Bye Birdie in high school and stuff like that. <laughs> you know? um, so it was it was a good experience, I think, for me to uh, grow a love for music since it was around all the time. When it comes to potentially taking auditions for different types of musical groups. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's maybe a good start to recognize that at a young age that, you know, it does take a significant amount of practice to be noticed, but also to uh, just propel yourself forward in a natural, you know, way, organic way. Yeah, we also, from a young age, we also have that perception of kind of like we are a dime a dozen, like (laughs) initially, because we know there's so many of us, whereas like someone else who may have only been the only tuba player in their band or the only bassoonist or something like that now, you know, enters the world of college and is like, oh man, there is a lot of people like me. It's like, we already had that from when we started. We were like, yep, we know there's a bunch of us and we're here. people in my 12 trumpet players in my band yes yeah 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 we were talking a little bit about your school and your early experiences so what made you want to pursue music professionally yeah my gosh that's just such a long road from from um you know uh, (laughs) early education to professionalism um but i'll try and you know try and summarize some of it that i think has been influential to me um I, when I went to Boston University is where I went to college for my undergraduate degree. I studied with Terry Everson, who is just a fabulous musician. Um, He really, I I truly believe what is in his heart comes out of his bell. Um, And that was a wonderful person to be surrounded by at a young age, kind of um, just ensuring in my brain how important the musical side of it is and not as much focus truly on how the technique of all of that goes. Um, obviously capable of learning any of those things, but I, I think it's hard to remember at a young age that it's not just about accurately uh, portraying the music, but definitely about demonstrating the music that you see there in the art. Um, I love to focus on that. And I think that that's a, a huge asset from that I learned from Terry Everson. Um, but I, so I went to school for four years there. And then um, my senior year, I was lucky on faculty was Tom Rolfs from the Boston Symphony. And so in my senior year at Boston U- University, I studied not only uh, solo repertoire with Terry Everson, but I was lucky to study orchestral rep with Tom Rolfs, who at the time was the associate principal trumpet um, of the Boston Symphony. And he, he would, it was cute. He just harbored me. He, you know, would bring me down to the basement. I would take the train downtown to Symphony Hall and would sit in the boiler room, which strangely enough, the St. Louis Symphony has a very similar looking boiler room. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's loud as all heck down there with all the sounds of the whole building churning. Um, And we would have lessons that I would record and could barely hear because it was so loud down there. But his expectation of me was very high. And, and equal to what someone might expect from you in preparation level for an orchestral job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt that kind of pressure at a young age, um, I thought, which felt like, you know, maybe every two weeks I would meet with him. And he would, I remember it being the first shocking thing. He said, okay, cool. You know, like, I want you to learn Pines of Rome. Okay, great. And the realization that he did not mean just the excerpt <laughs> you know he meant the entire intro he means, yep. the, solo. He means the entire end of the piece yeah <laughs> you would walk through i know and it seems so obvious right but you know when we're taking these auditions i think we can get a little bit um tunnel vision on these very specific parts of the symphony and forget that you know there's a larger picture and that was a nice reminder at that age so i started learning full orchestral parts i think at that point and then also recognizing how important transposition was at that age so being kind of inspired um you know i I will not lie that at, at a young age i went to the symphony and did not realize that people playing the trumpet weren't necessarily reading the music on the page, you know, that yeah. they were more likely than not transposing what they were seeing. And so I remember even that being an eye-opening experience when I first stepped into college. Did you have that mm-hmm. similar experience? <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, a, a couple of things that you, you said, I studied my undergrad, I went to school in Cleveland and I studied with um, Jack Suddy, who's the second trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra. And that was one thing that he was super adamant about was us learning the full orchestral parts to anything that we were working on. And I remember, yeah. I think I was learning, I was learning a bunch of Debussy at one point. I was just getting real mad because it was in like, <laughs> it's just in some weird keys. And I was just getting so frustrated with myself because of that trans transposition thing that you were talking about. It was a major shocker for me, my freshman year of college as well, um, was having to transpose stuff all the time. Um, yeah. But yeah, I also did have to learn full orchestral parts too. And I remember, I think it was like La Mer. I was just getting really frustrated with myself. I just like remember doing that in the practice room. But yeah, full orchestral yeah. parts for sure. I think it gives you more context of what's going on. It's not like this whole tunnel vision of, yes, I'm learning this one excerpt that I'm going to play 500 bajillion times, but I can't tell you what the rest of the piece is going to sound like. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's a major, major hole that happens if you don't learn the full part as well. And yeah, the transposition thing, that was the bane of my existence my freshman year of college, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so we're not alone. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know, to just try and continue along the different paths that I'm, I guess I was speaking to, um, mm -hmm. I went on to my master's for my, um, at Northwestern and studied with Barbara Butler, Charlie Geyer, and Chris Martin. Um, and Chris at the time was principal in Chicago Symphony. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that was uh, that was probably the most important experience I think I had orchestrally prior to being in a full-time position. Um, it, there were so many facets of it that were useful. I think specifically um, Barbara Butler would run um, what she called pool auditions. I guess Charlie would as well. And we would have an audition for an orchestral excerpt or, or orchestral trumpet class. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how she labeled it, but what it essentially was is what we're talking about um, with the work with Tom Rawls, where we would we would be assigned a part and we would have to prepare the entire part and she would conduct us regardless of whether or not, you know, it was 20 measures of rest prior to your entrance, she would conduct us. We knew that we would get someone to bring us from the top of the piece to the bottom of the piece. Mm -hmm. And having that experience where you took a pool audition to win a position in a course, first off. So you're already seeing it as an important part of your education because of the audition part of the process. But then also, you know, there's a pride element. She would put your name on the door and you would be, you know, one of the top five people in the uh, studio to then get, get to even <laughs> take the class <laughs> and then to take that class and have her, ex you know, her expectations again, being very high in preparation specifically um, is what I think really paved an easier road for me when I got into the orchestra because it felt as if I had played through most of these symphonies prior to sitting down um, wow. in the real job. And so I think those two applications of education were really useful for me in learning um, the ins and outs of orchestral stuff. So I, I know for sure I was inspired to go in that direction after my two years of schooling there in my master's. Um, I was lucky to to go on and win a job pretty quickly. Um, actually, while I was at the last couple uh, months of my master's, I went to the Spoleto Music Festival down in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, I won the principal job down there while I was at the music festival. Um, and I remember that feeling like a feat because it was the first time I didn't have someone weekly looking over my shoulder, giving me critique. And instead it was finally put on my plate. So I was kind of, it felt a little bit on my own to decide how I was going to truly prepare for this. Cause I was so used to like being able to play a round for her right before maybe I flew out the next day, you know, for these auditions. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so that was, uh, it felt like a, a proud moment um, that I had found something that had worked for me um, in that environment that helped me uh, win that job uh, at that age. I guess I was 23 at that age. Yeah, that's amazing. I just wanted to circle back really quick. When you're talking about studying with Barbara and Charlie, like everybody in the trumpet world is like, oh, legends. Everybody that studies with them gets a job and they like have moved everywhere. They're at like Eastman and they're at Northwestern and they're just, they bounce everywhere. And every time they go somewhere, their studios are very successful. And so was it just the audition process sort of piece that you were talking about that helped you prepare for a job in your, in your master's? 
or was it other things that they did? Like what strategies as, you know, trumpet people and as pedagogues did they use to like really help their students feel confident in taking or auditions? Yeah. Well, there's, I think a couple of things you can speak to. Um, and some of them parallel uh, life when you're auditioning for a typical orchestra anyway, which is that I do think that they choose the players that they know that they um, will work well with. So I, I think that it starts with a good pairing. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, these players are the best players. I think that they can see potential in people really well. Um, and I and I do notice uh, now that I've been on some audition panels that my ear tends towards that as well. You know, it doesn't tend towards I want the most perfect execution of this excerpt, but I want to know that I want to play with this person. I want to um, I want to have the same musical concept as this person. That kind of feeling I feel like is applied to while how they were choosing the players um, that they would work with. Um, but I think a, a, a huge facet of of that that's important is that you're now surrounded by a lot of kind of like-minded people. Um, and I learned so much from my colleagues while I was there. Um, you know, I don't love to shout out names, but you know, there's still some of my best friends, Jeff Strong's in the LA Phil, and we were, he was my second trumpet player here in um, the St. Louis Symphony. So you can see how quickly that turned around in my professional life, um, that someone that I was dear friends with in my masters, I'm now working, you couldn't work any clo more closely with someone than yeah. them second trumpet player. Um, and so, you know, it's the same idea, you know, Mike Martin, who's now in Boston and Ethan Bensdorf, who's in the New York felt, we were all just buddies and we would sit down and it was the cool thing to do to go play duets. It was the cool thing mm -hmm. to do to go practice, you know? Um, and so having an environment where it was uh, part of the culture norm to, to be so excited and inspired by music, I think that that just, you know, accelerates everything. Um, when you're not just learning from your teacher weekly, um, but you're daily surrounded by musicians that inspire you, I think that that's, uh, you know, that's a quick, fast track to, uh, to becoming a professional at it, I, I think. Um, and so I always recommend my students to always to be listening, you know, at the different recitals you attend or in the different brass quintets or brass ensembles that you're in, find that player that really jives with you musically and see, you know, the small little bits and tidbits of musicality that um, that you can steal for them from them or even learn from them. You know, what is it that you're doing to to make this better? Because I think we learn just as much from the people around us as we do from our educators that are uh, official educators, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You bring up the good point of I, I feel like a lot of people put a lot of weight on the teacher, which is, you know, very justified. You need to have a great teacher, but also that studio culture really plays in a lot, especially I feel like when you're a person that's, you know, a full-time student and is constantly surrounded by the same peers over and over again in ensembles and studio class and what have you, I think that's so important. And yeah, finding someone that, you know, you are really enjoying facets of their playing, you want to learn more from them is so important. I found a lot, you know, in my education growing up that I often played better and I learned so much more when I was around people that were better than me. It really motivated me to work harder. And I found myself progressing faster when I was in an environment where, you know, there were individuals that I was like, holy crap, how are they playing that? I want to learn how to do that. It was providing me with a lot more motivation than if I felt like, oh, okay, I don't really have a strong relationship with the people in this room. I'm just kind of here, you know? Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if it is that we're, we're going for an orchestral position or even, you know, the number of positions that are just as I think prestigious as in the military positions, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're surrounded by a bunch of people. You're constantly going to be making music with people. So start that process as soon as possible, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. And so do you have, you know, as a person that You've played for quite a few orchestras already, so I'm sure you've had a lot of audition preparation in your life. <laughs> so do you have any sort of tips that you've like figured out, you know, whether it's like actually on the trumpet or not, just in general, that you've, you know, determined in yourself that you could provide with others who may be preparing for auditions? Do you have any tips or advice for those that 
are, you know, currently with their heads in excerpts trying to win a job. Yeah. Um, I think I highlighted a little bit of it when I was talking about the, the Charleston Symphony Audition, where I felt like I was kind of on my own for the first time. Um, I, I do remember at that time, you know, I'll admit the, I don't think the Charleston list was as deep as some of the different orchestral audition lists that I have encountered. Um, mm -hmm. So I, it was a benefit that I could find all of those at the time on the orchestral CD that Phil Smith had made. Um, the orchestral excerpt CD. And I do, I, I, I do remember spending a significant amount of time um, listening and recording myself and listening back in comparison to some of those recordings mm. and using them almost as a template from the, for a starting spot. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I think we can all agree that if any of those uh, orchestral CDs, I know Mike Sachs has one too, um, or are someone were to be able to press play and it really sound like a trumpet behind a screen, we can kind of guess that it's likely that that, that recording would advance at these auditions because of the depth of musicality, I think specifically um, in, the, in the one that I can speak to, which is Phil Smith's recordings. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I used that to be sure um, that I was on the track of what actually Barbara, I, could, I feel like you, if you could see my quote fingers, <laughs> the how it goes <laughs> of, of these excerpts. Um, and that's something that she would speak to a lot is that we have to have a starting spot as to how these excerpts go in the orchestra. I think we recognize that every conductor that gets on the podium is going to choose a different tempo, is going to is going to have a different musical soul, right? And essentially what an orchestra is doing each time is that they're performing that music director's interpretation of that piece with probably a tint of the history of that orchestra. Yeah. Is, is how I feel like you is what the presentation of an orchestral concert is. And I guess the idea that I was trying to get to is that ideally that if there is a template to start with um, in preparing these excerpts, why not use the ones in the tools that we actually have? Yeah. And so I would sit down and, you know, I can remember distinctly the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. There is this beautiful fugue that happens. I can almost, it's like on the second page of the trumpet, first trumpet part, and it's halfway down the page. And it, I remember this triplet feel, I know this is so like almost probably too far in depth, but I remember this triplet feel and I would record myself and I would listen back and I, there was something about it. And, you know, I just wasn't truly playing that triplet feel right. I was, you know, or the triple versus duple feel and being able to have that one voice taken out of the orchestra, what a piece of gold, you know, that, that they have created this tool for us um, to use in this process. Um, but, you know, eventually as I took auditions, I grew out of that CD and there were, you know, I went and took, for example, like the Boston Symphony audition and they don't even give you excerpts. They just tell you the symphonies. They will list off, here's the list. We're not providing you the repertoire. We are providing you, we want you to learn Mahler one, two, three, seven, nine, you know, and mm -hmm. that's it. And so at that point, I started creating my own excerpt CDs. And so that would be the other uh, small bit of advice that I would give. And it also hints at learning for full orchestral parts, just like we were talking about earlier. Um, because, you know, you get into a position where you're auditioning for the lyric opera and perhaps opera repertoire is not something um, that you're as well acquainted with. Um, there's, there's a lot of study work to be done there. And my favorite work to be done is to find the specific excerpt in the opera, purchase the recording, probably throw it into some type of recording um, platform, you know, some type of digital audio workstation and edit it so that I have my own now a uh, list of excerpts that demonstrate probably, you know, anywhere between 10, 20 measures before the excerpt, the entire excerpt, and then the portion after it. And so that I have very well acquainted myself with the sounds that would be around me prior to this excerpts. Um, and, and then that now that can translate directly into orchestral knowledge and you're not just learning for the audition purposes. So that would be probably one of my biggest ones um, is if you don't know where to start, I think that that's a good spot only because it can, 
it can be so inspirational. I think it it would always get me excited to sit down and practice. Um, is if I sitting down and listening to the orchestra and imagining yourself in it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just fires me up. Yeah, I love that. And and you had so many good points there. And yes, the Phil Smith CD, I used that too in college. I think everybody uses that. It's just right. it's readily available on YouTube too now. It's like you're just like and 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 I what I liked about it too was like he was not he didn't just play the excerpt. He like talked about how he approached it and what sound he likes to go for or the context of what's happening um in the piece as well. And so for someone who's like, you know, 19, 18 years old and is trying to learn something that they don't, you know, they may not have the contextual knowledge of the piece yet. That was really helpful. So yeah, I think a lot of people use that. <laughs> it's like the, the little, the little mini, mini, uh, trumpet excerpt Bible. <laughs> That's just like this little audio. <laughs> yeah, and I think if you use it right, like, cause I just don't want it to sound like I'm preaching that you need to sound like Phil Smith. Cause it's yeah. not that way. However, I, I just know that it's a great starting point. Um, and, and if it's used right, which is to record yourself and then use it as a comparison, your brain is doing so much fabulous work in, in teaching yourself, you know, um, that I think that sometimes we put on the back burner when we're waiting for someone to educate us about something, you know, when we have probably at that point in our life, plenty of tools to start educating ourselves in that way. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I'm a middle school and high school band director, so I teach kids all the time and um, we are naturally making comparisons in lessons with our teacher since we start. We are, we're always trying to mimic, you know, whatever our teacher's sound is and, and not in the sense that like we are directly copying it, right? Like your tone quality is going to always be different than whoever you're playing with, but we are constantly trying to better ourselves in that way. And so if you're working with someone or you're listening to someone who clearly is the professional, there's nothing wrong with comparing what you're doing to what they're doing. Not saying like you were saying, like necessarily copying what they're doing, but using that for inspiration and motivation to saying, okay, this person's interpreting it this way. I like what they're doing there. So I'm going to try to make myself sound like that. Or, you know, maybe I'm going to try to go this way with it, but it's a way to like really compare that way. Cause I think that's just what we naturally do from the very beginning. I do a lot of playing back and forth with my young students. And as we go forward and we get that repetition in, you know, four or five times, they're already getting better just from playing back and forth with me. So I think that, we kind of forget that sometimes as we get older and then we kind of come back to it later and we're like, oh yeah, you know, that's how I naturally learned when I was a kid. Maybe I should go back to that, you know? I mean, you just think about it. It's like how birds learn how to fly. You exactly. Know? Like, <laughs> you have to remember that it's natural. It's a very natural way for your brain to learn. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so we were talking about your experiences, preparing for these auditions, taking them and that sort of thing. And obviously the elephant in the room is that, you know, you are a woman and I'm a woman as well. And we both play male dominated instruments. And one of the things that I noticed in some of the interviews that you've done is you always like try to like, you know, take gender kind of out of the equation, right? Like I'm a trumpet player. This is what I do. And I I have the same philosophy as well. But besides, you know, Barbara Butler having an influence on your life, did you have any other just like women trumpet players that you listen to or you know, gain some inspiration from either growing up or, you know, uh, collegiately or even professionally that you, you enjoy listening to? Yeah. You know, that list could probably be very long. Um, <laughs> but, but the, you know, I have to have to start with Susan Slaughter. Um, she is quite the force in the trumpet orchestral world. Um, and yeah. I'm so, wow. It's just been quite an experience to fill a position that was held by someone um, that has such a history in changing that for women and paving a way as a pioneer in this orchestral world. Um, I do know that some people, you know, and I agree, I I do try to take some of some of the gender out, but I think it's it's probably does it a disservice to recognize that I yes, I am a female and I am a uh, of a small percentage of people that are doing this right now. And of course, I hope to inspire other women and um, just so that they see that it's done. I know that a lot of people need that um, for their inspiration. Um, you know, they, they speak to it in that book. I don't know if you've read The Talent Code. Yeah. 
but yeah, these pockets of people that are inspired by, you know, like Serena Williams. And now you have young African American women that believe that, that, wow, this woman can make it to this level. And now, she, now she's a professional and I can do the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. so I do think that that's an important part of inspiring future generations of people. Um, but Susan, you know, Susan had a rough start at that. And I think it would be a disservice not to recognize that she did not apply with um, you know, a state like a, a, a pen name basically um, to apply to the St. Louis Symphony um, at many, many years ago now, right? She was in the orchestra for about 40 something years and she's been, I think, retired for maybe like almost a decade now. Yes, yeah, so she was influential on me in not that way, but I want to recognize it as a professional um, inspiration. But the yeah. when I was younger, my dad did uh, help me recognize uh, that she was playing on a recording that I was listening to of the St. Louis Symphony, and it was a recording that I, I believe she did with Leonard Slatkin on American in Paris. Um, mm. And it had a beautiful soul to it. Um, and I listened to it so, so many times. Um, so I, I do distinctly remember that recording for sure, Susan. And I think that there's been a couple other women. When, when I was... Um, in my undergrad, I went to the Eastern Music Festival and had a, a short study with uh, Judy Saxton for a summer. And I remember that feeling nice because I, I hadn't experienced other women educating in brass at that point. Yeah, yeah. So that was cool. It was one of the first connections. You know, I, I was probably about 16 or 17 years old at that time. And uh, she, you know, talked with me about an embouchure change at the time, and I just remember feeling inspired by her. Um, I run into her recently because the Women's Brass Conference will put on a, um, which, by the way, Susan Slaughter has started mm-hmm. and still um, running after so many years. Um, I know that it's helped a lot of young, younger women um, at least feel. Uh, accepted into a community um, that maybe sometimes they don't feel so accepted in. And uh, I think that that was very smart of her. I will admit that I struggle a little bit in in the regard of, and maybe this is a discussion that I would even love to have with you because you have this entire um, podcast about it. <laughs> I can sometimes find myself struggling a little bit with the feeling of isolating a group of people so that they get stronger, but then I always have a concern that there's some type of isolation that happens that also feels like segregating. And, yeah. and right. And I, I just want to put that out there as a something that, it, which is why I speak to, you know, trying not to put too much gender on my instrument. Um, yeah. I think it's more, it comes from that element, but totally recognize that there, that there is across the board, different types of discrimination that everyone um, faces. And uh, and that there are things that need to potentially throw that off balance. So I I just want to put that out there. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I I completely agree with that notion. Um, I think I think the way I like to think about that is that I mean, just because you're a woman does not necessarily mean you're going to have you know adverse experiences or you're going to experience overt sexism in music or anything like that. But there are women that do. So there's this like balance of. For me, I was never denied a job because I am a woman. That never happened to me. That has happened to other women. And so I think the other thing that the International Women's Brass Conference is trying to approach is that it's, yes, it says women on there, but they also invite anyone to come. And so sometimes they'll even have like men presenting at the conference and it's kind of like, oh, what are they doing there? But it's a way of like integrating them into the sense of we do have sometimes different experiences than our male counterparts do but at the same time it's not they're trying not to segregate at the same time it's this weird balance and so for me when I started this podcast I didn't want it to just be for women I wanted it to be for any underrepresented community in music so I have men on the show I have people of color I have the LGBTQ community anybody on the show that is representing that underrepresented community in music so that's my way of like trying to not segregate just one facet of our our community but to create intersectionality in that way in music because I do agree with you for me, I want to be seen as a trumpet player. I don't want to be seen as a female trumpet player. I hate when they attach the, I'm a female trumpet player. I'm a female conductor. I'm a female, blah, blah, blah. I, I hate that um, attachment that we always put on things because we don't do that for men. So I want people to see me as a trumpet player first. And yes, I happen to be a woman, but I'm a trumpet player. So I do agree with you in that, in that regard. 
Yeah, no, bravo to you. I, I think you're doing great work. I just Thanks. wanted to bring up the subject. I felt like it was a good conversation. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree with what you're what you're saying as well. I, I think a lot of times when I have these conversations with people on the show too, they talk about like, you know, there's this lack of representation in the field, for example, but they never, a lot of them felt like they weren't going to be successful if they didn't have that representation. Like when I was talking with Carol Yonch, she talked about like, you know, there's obviously a lack of women who play tuba, but she never thought she wasn't going to be successful because she didn't see women there. She just thought it was really nice to be part of a community when she did see a woman that happened to play the same instrument as her. So I think it's this, this balance of we, we do appreciate seeing people who identify the same way as us in the field, but a lot of people don't necessarily think, oh, I'm not going to be successful just because I'm not around people that look like me. But it does help to be around people that do identify the same way you do. Yeah, maybe that's the exact thing that you've changed is just yeah. the you know perspective. And that's could, that's worth every every minute that you've done this. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Of course, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I don't know. <laughs> attempting attempting so yeah i do agree that there is that that sort of the fine line that we have to walk in this and like how do we define what we're doing what our approach is it's the approach the perspective should be of integrating everybody together not necessarily separating those from each other but you were talking about susan yeah. uh, and you know what i me growing up like you won the st louis job in 2013 i was in high school at that point because i'm you know young <laughs> Um, I remember when you won your job and I just thought it was so incredible. And obviously I knew about Susan as being a young trumpet player as well, but I, I just love how St. Louis Symphony has this history of promoting women in their orchestra and having a more, I guess, diverse sort of approach. I mean, obviously orchestras have a long way to go before we can consider, you know, classical music to be a very diverse sort of community in the orchestral world. But I did find that to be extremely positive growing up that there was this history of women trumpet players in that section. So for you, when you won that job, how did you feel like to, to win a job that had historically like broke so many barriers for women in trumpet? Yeah. I mean, it just feels so epic, huh? I mean, it was <laughs> such a an incredible moment in my life. I will, I have to admit that. Um, I was up on the second floor like I, I tell people often in my, I have a, ma a whole masterclass that I like to talk um, about. And a part of it is the uh, a highlight rail. And this is one of my highlight rails. So I can tell you so distinctly so that when I walk on stage, I like to sometimes pull upon my highlight rail so that I feel perhaps more confident than maybe I'm feeling in that moment. Um, but one of my highlight rails is remembering, you know, after playing my last round with the section, uh, going up to the second floor and being in the green room, having someone ask me to come down to the stage again and I grab my trumpets you know and walk because I assumed I had to play one more round or something and I walked down to the stage and the entire brass section had a beer in the air uh, which is uh, a new a new a thing as of Roger Casa who's our principal horn player it's it's his thing to invite any brass player um, in that way and welcome them and they all lifted a beer and they said welcome home as I walked back on stage and so I could almost cry talking about it because it feels like such an emotional moment of um, uh, of success in my life. Uh, and uh, but there are other ones that feel just as important, admittedly. Um, but that one is so distinctly clear. Um, so I appreciate you asking about it. It it's felt like a wonderful transition. The section of trumpet players are so welcoming, and I would also say just so well adjusted to the idea of there being different genders in those mm -hmm. sections that it that it truly when I say that I, I keep it you know I, I keep it slightly separate because I don't feel like anyone treats me that way in that section. yeah um and so I do feel like that is um oh it's just it's it's a benefit for sure that I have gained from Susan um, and hope that more people feel those feelings when they uh, and as welcomed as I have. Um, and that continues to change with this type of work that we're doing. Yeah. And you're just such a prime case of a person that has walked into a position and felt so comfortable and so positive about being in that environment that we can, you know, use your experience to attest to the fact that if we are more accepting 
of a diverse population of people in an orchestra and people like Susan that I had to break that barrier, it creates a much more accepting environment and a much more nourishing environment for everyone involved. And so I think that that change in culture has created something that's going to have a lasting impact with that orchestra and for anyone who fills those positions in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You had mentioned at the beginning of our time when you were introducing yourself that you recently started a record label, which I wasn't aware of. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. Can you talk a little bit about that project as well? Yeah, I mean, I can. I have a. I feel like I have a whole second life that has built over, <laughs> over the COVID times. <laughs> I, I feel that too. I started the podcast during this time, so I completely agree. Good for you, and, and I'm sure you found a lot of inspiration from it, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I've met and talked to people that I would never have any business talking to in any other way. <laughs> That's not true. I can't imagine that's true. We're all, we're all just humans, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I did. I started, um, I started taking some audio engineering courses, um, a couple years ago, um, and, uh, at a local university here and found a wonderful mentor. His name is Carl Napa. Um, and you may or may not know that Nellie, Nellie's hometown is actually St. Louis. And so yes. Carl Napa actually was his, um, engineer for years. Oh, and wow. I, uh, yeah, exactly. Was lucky to find um, this, uh, what feels like a piece of gold of a mentor in that field for me and has guided me. He, he lives, um, his studio is actually only a couple miles from my house. And so I've done a little bit of shadowing at that recording studio um, and then started noticing that there is a genre of music that I think is um, underrepresented, which is um, just kind of this cross genre appeal of music where we have orchestral musicians that are, you know, arguably at the top when it comes to their abilities to execute their instruments, right? Um, we spend hours and hours executing our instruments and, and creating music that's, you know, these symphonies and operas, which are hours and hours long um, and have such um, deep capabilities of expressing music. And I just feel like sometimes it's, uh, I don't, I want to make sure I <laughs> phrase this correctly, but, you know, I think it's unfortunate that sometimes it's wasted on just orchestral music. Um, yeah. And so I, I myself have started, um, built a recording studio in my house um, over COVID and have, have been helping out different hip hop uh, engineers and producers in creating trumpet lines, you know, small little hook lines. Um, or solo lines and recording it in my house and sending it to them. And they have the ability to just drop it into a Pro Tools track and it's as if I'm at the recording session. So it was something that was very accessible for me during COVID, um, but it's something I've always enjoyed. Um, I remember recording my friend's recitals when I was back at school. Um, it also felt like I got like kind of the backstage pass by being like someone's sound engineer at their recital. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think I, I started also a little bit younger being inspired by re uh, recorded music and um, oh boy, I mean, this is a bit of a deep conversation because I've actually also started, um, I don't know if you want to call it a band or if you want to call it a collaborative music group of some sort, but um, the principal or assistant principal percussionist um, of the St. Louis Symphony, Alan Stewart, and I have been creating rock music. So I started learning electric guitar and um, started singing um, because that's actually been a, a huge benefit to my trumpet playing um, is yeah. learning how to sing better, I should say. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, so I've also been writing music. And so I've now learned the entire process. So I've learned um, songwriting techniques, um, performing techniques on different instruments, um, collaborative techniques in smaller ensembles, which, you know, playing guitar and playing with, with the drums, you're listening to arrangements, you're listening to how different, how the music that you've created moves you yourself, you know, so you can become a little bit more aware of, you know, different things that might feel like movements or different moods within music. Um, and then all the way to the production side of it too, which is to record and produce and then distribute. So I finally discovered that I had the abilities to do all of these things. Why not help out and um, be inspired also by other like-minded musicians that perhaps might want to try this cr cross-genre style um, of recording and see, see if they can be inspired in other ways. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of how all that started. I'm planning on re um, uh, releasing some some music with my band um, soon. Actually, probably I'd say in the next couple months. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and it couldn't be any more different than orchestral music. So it's uh, it's been fulfilling in a oh in a musical voice that I haven't had before. So um, ah. it feels young, you know, and it feels fun. And uh, it reminds me of the passion that you can have with music and kind of this like flow state that you can get in um, mm -hmm. performing music that is sometimes a little bit harder when you're in massive groups of people, you know, 80 people on stage playing a symphony. You're very much a unit of, or like this giant amoeba, you know, whereas, um, this is more of like soloistic style stuff. Um, and then choosing words, you know, um, we don't do that on the trumpet. Mm -hmm. So that's another element of things that perhaps I might adapt to some of my solos in the future, you know, like, what am I saying with this? And if it was words, what would they be? You know? Yeah. So it's been inspiring, um, this time. And I know it's tough for everyone, right? Cause we're all sort of been struggling through this pandemic. We're just trying, I don't know about you, but I mean, just kind of like, grasping at whatever I can find that will be not only comforting, but keep me, keep my musical spirit up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's kind of where these two things I think were birthed. Yeah. That's so amazing. And it, it kind of connects me to some of the other interviews I've done with like Carol and Elizabeth Rowe. And they were both talking about how like they have had to in their orchestral career kind of look for other creative outlets to keep them fulfilled and like carol had said in her interview like it's not your job's job to fulfill you and so you know she started like tubas for good and then she's in this band called tubular and all this cool stuff and so like it's kind of similar to what you're doing and that you're finding the individual creativeness of who you are as a musician separating yourself from like the unit of the orchestra and really fulfilling yourself creatively in so many different ways. And I think that's excellent. And it's it's very promising to hear people's stories and how they've been able to remain positive and find things to do during this time, because it has been such a terrible time for so many musicians, but they're able to, you know, find ways to keep going. And like you said, like grasp at things <laughs> to keep them, to keep them going musically. But I think it's amazing that there are people like you that are, are doing those projects. Yeah, you know, it is, it has been a tough time. I feel like we could, we could speak to that for a long time too, because I don't even want to sit here and pretend like my life's been easy. I've I've been going through a lot of things. I've had, I've been dealing with a small, uh, an injury. Um, I've been dealing with, you know, COVID, uh, um, <laughs> admittedly dealing with a breakup. And so there's like, don't worry, everyone, <laughs> there's a lot going on, even if it appears that you know, your next door neighbor is doing so much. We're all you know, we've all got our stuff going on. And we're all working on it. You know, we just all got to take it one day at a time. And I think I think it's okay. I think it'll be okay. in the general scheme of things, if we can do it, we can focus on life that way, you know? Yeah, yeah, living in that in the moment and not trying to dwell on what has been or what will be. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, yeah. Anyway, the only thing I just, it's like, whoever's listening, you're not alone. <laughs> Everybody's struggling um, during this time as, as well with, you know, personal, professional. Hmm. It's, it's just been crazy. Well, my last question for you hmm. is, I actually asked Carol this question too, is it, has anyone ever like thinking about, you know, your time as a student or as a professional, has there been one piece of advice um, that you've received from someone that's kind of stuck with you, whether it be, you know, personally or professionally? Yeah, there's one that that's just, cause it, it hits me almost every single day. Um, cause it's a hard one. Um, but I, uh, I think it was a while ago, I found a YouTube video. I was just looking for different, um, types of ways to keep myself um, in the right mindset on stage while performing. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a reminder at the end of the video um, to authenticity is way more important than perfection. I thought that was so powerful because I listen to auditions all the time, right? I mean, we listen, I listen to all different instruments taking auditions for the St. Louis Symphony. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, the people to me that advance are the people that move me, 
you know um i recognize that we're not machines and i think it's sometimes hard to separate ourselves from that right because of these recordings that we have that are remind you edited you know these solo recordings that we have you know these people they're very very incapable musicians that are incredible you know incredibly talented i don't want to demean that but none of us are perfect you know um so I think if the if the focus can just be directed a little more on that, I think that it will propel you further in your career. Um, and then that paired with something that Barbara said to me, and I think we all know this, but you know, as a musician, we kind of, you know, somehow I don't know how it turns into this, but you know that that dream job is at the top of the mountain, and we're we're trying to get there, right? Well, at some point, if you, um, you know, if everything works out right, how how you're hoping it works out, and you know, I could speak a lot towards like different types of manifestation and different types of, you know, mental focus. But ideally, you're always you're always going to have the next thing that you're hoping for, right? And yeah. so. Once you get that job, say, you know, as we're speaking, you were, you were mentioning the different interviews you've taken, and it sounds similar, that once we get to this goal, there has to be other things that in your life that are, you know, that are fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, yes, trumpet-wise, but also not trumpet-wise, and reminding that your life, and this is from Barbara, your life is this road, you know, there's, yeah. I think it can be disappointing when you think that there is an end spot. Or um, because when you get there and there's still more to the road, but you don't have, you know, you don't know <laughs> what mm-hmm. to do because you've only focused on one facet of your life and it's now gold and the other elements, you know, um, you could speak to mental health, you could speak to physical health, you know, yeah. none of those things I think should go by the wayside in the process of trying to get to that dream. So I think that that's how I interpret both of those. <laughs> Yeah, that's so excellent. And such great advice too. I I think approaching your your life in that way and that mindset is so helpful. Karen, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time and talking about your experiences and providing so much insight into your life. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's wonderful to talk to you, Cassidy, and wonderful to meet you, even if audibly. (laughs) 